you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast the podcast is called be real and your hosts are called chancel viver and noah ballard what's up buddy hey pal how are you I'm doing well. Um, we're here today to talk about movies that didn't need to be made. Yeah, basically. Well, seemingly unnecessary prequels is the is the title. One of our very first episodes was seemingly seemingly unnecessary sequels, in which I believe we did like sequels with like a twenty year gap that made them unnecessary. I think we did what Crystal Skull and Color of Money and Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. That was like our sixth episode. So like three years later, um, here we are. We've recorded uh, other podcast episodes in the meantime, though. We have. Um, But now we're talking about uh, prequels that never needed to be made. We're going to talk about the franchise that made prequel a word that exists in most people's lexicon. (laughs) We're going to talk about Star Wars and the new uh, Solo colon a Star Wars story. We are going to talk about 2002's Red Dragon which is, of course, a prequel to The Silence of the Lambs and streaming on Netflix. And we're going to talk about Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which is a prequel to the Harry Potter series. came right. out in 20, 2015, I believe. So that's what brings us here today. We're going to be joined in a little bit by John DeLillo from Film School Rejects to, uh, to have a very enthusiastic conversation about what, just what the hell they're doing in the Star Wars universe. I feel like I need to apologize to John, because normally when I see these movies, I talk with my Nebraska crew at Christmas, because that's when they always come out, for like four to six hours before I discuss them with anyone semi-professionally. Um, and I guess I'll apologize to you, too, because there's probably a lot more untapped opinion here. Well, I thought your interview with him was pretty great. And frankly, like I listened to your cut of it like right after I got out of Solo, and... I really felt heard. I felt seen. <laughs> I felt like you two like really got into so like the the major frustration that I have with this movie, which I think is probably systemic of a yeah. lot of problems with the universe that you guys touched on quite eloquently. So thanks, man. No apology um, necessary. So what? We're a week out from the release of Solo: A Star Wars Story, which is of course. A young Han Solo movie, the character made immortal in all of pop culture by Harrison Ford in 1977. Um, And then, yeah, reprised by some guy. Right. (laughs) And I don't think we know his name, do we? Um, Alton, Alden? Very close. Aaron, Aaron Wright? Aaron Raft? You are, you just say a couple more German syllables, you'll get there. Yeah, Alden Alden Ehrenreich, uh, who was kind of the breakout star of 2015's Hail Caesar, is uh, is, is sh- that what we're calling him? The breakout star of that little scene in the Coen Brothers movie. To me, he was the breakout star. That's literally that. I think what you consider breakout is really just the only other context you and I have for this actor. So if you want to call that a breakout performance, sure. He broke out into a two hundred fifty dollar, two hundred fifty million dollar movie. Was it really? Did it really make that much money? This this movie, not oh, Hail Caesar. I, I thought you were still talking about Hail Caesar. 
I wish we lived in a world where Hail Caesar made a quarter billion dollars. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, let's give, let's make more Cohen movies tomorrow. Yeah. Um, But this movie, well, your friend on the interview made it sound like a historic bomb. And what I think is just like a pretty soft opening. It's a historic bomb by what Disney wants out of these Star Wars movies. It looks like it could make its money back, which is a massive failure considering what I'm sure their spreadsheets project in this new force. How much did they, does it say on IMDb, like how much they spent on this movie? Uh, 250 million. Cause they essentially had to shoot it twice. And then that doesn't even count marketing. Cause you have to, can I just say like when you go into a star Wars movie, you expect a star Wars story, a star Wars story, but even the rogue one, you expect a certain level of production value. And I couldn't help but notice that like a lot of this movie is set on like one hill and in like a lot of fog or mud, like with Ryan Johnson or even with rogue one, there's like, it's a closer story, but I would argue that it has some pretty like epic shots. This movie's climax is like two dudes, two and a half. Well, two dudes and a woman in a, like a knife, a close combat knife fight. Right. And then, like, a ship, like, floats off. <laughs> We're not talking it's, about, like, a ship going through another ship. No. Or a Star Destroyer slow. in the desert. Yeah, there's, like, one, like, oh, there's a Star Destroyer coming. Let's not interact with it at all. Let's interact with these two TIE fighters in more fog. Who's got yeah. more fo- fog? What can we, how can we have fog in space? And well, some, so <laughs> some <laughs> consultant pops out and is just like, what if we had a maelstrom and everyone's like, what's that? And Kathleen Kennedy is just like, don't care. We need this movie to come out on Memorial Day weekend. So yeah, we, we open on Karelia and it's unclear how old Han Solo and his flame Kira played by Amelia Clark, Daenerys Targaryen from Game of Thrones are, but they are in so this sort of like indentured street crime servitude to this gangster called Lady Proxima, terrible name. Um, and I won't spoil what she is, I guess. But there's, I'll let you know when we're going to get into spoilers, because the whole interview is spoilerific. Um, there's, the only reason I, you should be listening to this is if you've seen it, because to have seen it is to ex- experience it, and then we'll yeah. go through it again. All right, well, there you go. Um, but they got to get out of there. They can't live a life of indentured street crime. Especially Trans not in their like early us. 30s or whatever they are. <laughs> yeah, we're 29, baby. We got to get out of here. Yeah, um, they're born to run. It is kind of yeah. like a Bruce Springsteen song. That's what I said in my review, yeah. Oh, I uh, haven't read it yet. I'll, no, I'll read right. it after. But actually, other people have been like, yeah, what is this, like, Born to Run? <laughs> like, a, more, a few people have put that together. Um, and so they're trying to get off Karelia, and Han does, and Kira doesn't, and he's like, I want to be a pilot. And they're like, join the Imperial Navy, son. And then it's three years later, and Han's like, I guess I'm not cut out to be a stormtrooper. Um, and he he's in the middle of this war zone and he, he, you know, throws his hat in the ring with Woody Harrelson playing Tobias Beckett, uh, a mercenary and, uh, and Tandy Newton and John Favreau playing kind of like a six armed, like arachnid mammalian creature. Uh, and he meets Chewbacca and, and eventually, you know, he, he relinks up with Kira and she's working for the crime syndicate Crimson Dawn. She's working for Dryden Voss, played Isn't by Crimson Paul Dawn. I feel like Crimson Dawn is the overlap sequel of, uh, uh, what's the one with Denzel Washington and, uh, Crimson Tide. Crimson Tide and, uh, the one where the 
the Russians come over the hills in Portland. Uh, Red, Red Dawn. Dawn. <laughs> yeah, you. <laughs> Maybe the submarine yeah. lands on the west coast, and all of those things converging would have been better than Paul Bettany on an egg ship with a in a villain who's like really not explained. You're after something. Is it revenge? Money? Or is it something else? You look good. A little rough around the edges, but good. Heard about a job. Big shot gangster putting together crew. I'm a driver, and I'm a flyer. I waited a long time for a shot like this. What do you think? Well, what do you know? Okay, so how's Alden? Han Solo is not, like, this... Like, he's brave and arrogant, but, like, not in the way that Alden is brave and arrogant. Okay. And it's just so off-putting because then you have to, like, sort of immediately dismiss everything you know about Han Solo as portrayed by Harrison Ford. And then you – so you sort of – for me, at least, I, like, put the what I knew about Star Wars aside just to, like, enjoy this film as a film, which I think any good movie or tentpole project should be. And what you're left with is just, like, a lot of Star Wars trivia, like – bait after a pretty compelling uh, train sequence. I kind of felt like Alden never really had a shot, you know? No! He's so at the mercy of the script, too, which is, you know, very kind of, at times, I think, like, thoughtful script, and then other times, like, totally disjointed. Like, he has that one line I really love where... uh, you know, they're trying to get out of some impossibly tight space spot. And he goes like, check it out, Chewbacca. I'm going to do what my friend Needles did. He was the best pilot in Karelia before he died doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and that really felt like a Lord and Miller kind of influence. But then other times they just like go to him and they're like, Alden, the camera's in your face. Like, be as charismatic as you can. And the line is like, yeah, baby. And, like, that's, those are just painful. And especially when he tries on the, like, he doesn't say don't get cocky, kid, but he says something approximately that with the ending kid to who goes from being, like, that's the crazy thing about this movie, to, like, clearly the villain in the train sequence is portrayed by, like, a middle-aged man. And uh-huh. then when they end up on, like, the sand oil mine planet or whatever by the beach, uh she's like a 16 year old girl. And it's like, that's not who was in that suit before. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You have to, I have to see it again. Yeah. <laughs> it's just another two and a half hours of your life. And that's the unforgivable thing about it too, is it's, if it were like a good movie and I'm in the camp that like, uh, force awakens is a good or no last Jedi is a good movie. Um, this isn't one, and it's long. But The Last Jedi is epic, and juggling six different you know, character plots in order to make points about this universe, this is just a folktale. Like, it doesn't have to be two and a half hours. It should have had, like, a voiceover. That would have made it better. Yeah, you think so? <laughs> yeah. 
with Harrison Ford doing the voiceover. That's the way you fucking save this movie. I'm not sure what we're about to see here, and I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah. Or have him deliver the line when they go into the maelstrom, like, and I had a good feeling about this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but I had a good feeling about it. Should they have just dubbed in his vocal register every time Alden spoke, a la Ray Park? Well, that's what, yeah, that's what they did for fucking Darth Maul. Yeah. Like, okay, so that's the thing. You're going through this movie, you're getting through it, it has some good action in it, it has, like, that compelling, I guess, knife fight, and it's like, okay, like, so what note is this tentpole franchise going to leave the audience on to see the next, probably, movie? And she's sitting there, um, Daenerys Targaryen, and she turns on the little thing and this hooded man in this hologram pops up and she's communicating with him and allegedly he's like the the kingpin of the crimson tide uh, the, the crimson dawn <laughs> and it's like who's this guy it's like it's emperor palpatine like it's something from like the original three yeah. movies or even like something leading into maybe the new series nay it is <laughs> One, Darth Maul, the demon devil Sith Lord from the the original prequel, The Phantom Menace. Right. It was just him and pod racing. That's really all I remember about that movie. But there he was with his little horns and just like making making weird faces. And in case you didn't recognize him, he then ignites both blades of his lightsaber. Just for just for kicks. You know what else is, and I don't even talk about this with John, you know what's totally unforgivable about that in a screenwriting sense is that's Kira's moment. This is supposed to be like kind of the like original disenchantment of the solo character they've written in, like the loss of this woman and the loss of her innocence. She's about to take over all Dryden Voss's business. You're supposed to be like, when first of all, it's one of the things Amelia Clark can actually do is, like, take on the sudden steeliness of, like, this I command thee. Like, that's her best move. And the the whole movie takes that away from her by putting Darth Maul in there. Right. Yeah, I feel like at best, if you want to be, like, bad fan fiction for the Han Solo character, you have to end this movie with her meeting... Job of the Hutt and like them working out some arrangement that like ultimately like fucks over Han Solo, which leads you into a new hope. Mm, okay. That's how you end this movie, but you don't end it with fucking Darth Maul. <laughs> like, then when does this movie take place? Because, like, how much older is Harrison Ford supposed to be than when he first does a new hope than where we leave Alden here? Because you're talking about the entire Hayden Christensen, like, birth to however old he's supposed to be in. Now, you know, you've heard about this, right? That this is Darth Maul from the Clone Wars cartoons. He's been found and put back together. This is not before Phantom Menace. What? (laughs) No, that's that's the appropriate reaction. Wait, no. Yeah. You, no, you're no. I think this movie's before Phantom Menace. There's no, no pro- way that they would have you presuppose that the only thing other than pod racing that you remember from the Phantom Menace 
was like put back together had you not seen these somewhat niche cartoons i'm so glad this is happening i'm so glad this is happening live on the air that's exactly what they've done did you notice that when he stood up he had a giant like uh like piece of metal welding around his middle no he'd been cut in half and put back together that's fucking horseshit i can't explain it i'm just telling you why don't we go to the you want to do the interview? Why don't we go to the interview and then rate this bad boy? All right. I heard a story about you. I was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me is true. <laughs> Our guest today is a writer for Film School Rejects, and it seems like he spent just a little bit of his holiday weekend pushing the block button on Twitter because of morons. Because after he published a piece last week about the latest piece of Star Wars fan service gone wrong john delillo welcome to the show uh hey great to great to be here thank you i'm very happy to have you um so how was your weekend by the way did you did you spend a little time arguing or banishing people on twitter uh i never use the block button always the mute button because then they just kind of scream into the void um sure yeah but uh, it really does feel like just all the people who six months ago came out of the woodwork to be crazy sexists about the last jedi are back and uh They found you. Yeah, they're worse than ever. There are people who have entire accounts devoted to this. It's just exhausting. Really? Oh, yeah. There's a one guy called Last Jedi, at Last Jedi Awful. And he, (laughs) I I mean, maybe I shouldn't be giving him any publicity here, but he is, uh, he's something else. I can't imagine doing that. What, yeah, what is his life like and his schedule and his calendar? I guess he gets up and he tweets about Ruin Johnson. And then I I just, I don't know. It's like I didn't like Han Solo, but I didn't get up and start. I mean, I guess I could call Ron Howard Ruin Howard, but I it's not sure. He's a sweetheart. Like I leave whatever. I, I mean, Ron Coward would probably. Oh, be that's better. a good one. You're right. But <laughs> uh, but no, let's not. We shouldn't waste our time in that. Um. So I will. This is a very spoilery conversation. I'm sure we've set that up in the actual episode by now. But I kind of want to go inside the cinematic experience of Darth Maul appearing in this movie. So there's what? 5 minutes left? Does that seem right? It's like it's like 10, 10? maybe 10. Okay. Yeah. Um you've just come out of a of a climactic knife battle where the villain of the movie has been dispensed. We've learned about Kira's future, or one of the villains I should say. Um and we're ca- the Kazdans are about to like reclaim this thing about Han Solo they've always believed in and smack in the middle of this Darth Maul appears so in your cinematic viewing John what what happened when this happened for you so um I'm a little bit of a weirdo about Star Wars I knew that Darth Maul was going to be in this movie I typically go into new Star Wars movies knowing like blow by blow what's about to happen Okay. Um, so when the con premiere came out and all of the reactions were on the internet, people were talking about there's a huge surprise in this movie. And I was sitting there like, what could this huge surprise possibly be? Like, uh-huh. uh, it's a Han Solo movie. Like, you feel like you know what you're getting into, right? Like, I thought, okay, we'll probably see Jabba the Hutt, Boba Fett, something like that. Is that the big surprise? That's not a huge surprise for, for me as far as I was no. concerned. But no, Boba Fett, the big surprise is that those two characters aren't in the movie, which like, I guess props for not doing that. But instead, so I, I knew there was this huge surprise and I said, you know, I kind of really need to know this. I'm, 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 I'm not going to wait because, and I'm kind of glad I didn't 
because yeah. I can only imagine how jarring and just incredibly yeah. strange it would have been to see Darth Maul just show up <laughs> with <laughs> 10 minutes left in the movie. Yeah. I almost felt embarrassed um, when it happened. Like, like it was reaching out for some like preteen part of me. That's like, you know who this is, even though you're watching a movie and you're in your twenties and yeah, it was, oof. What did your theater do? Uh, well, I saw it, um, with three people together and then there were three other people in my theater. It was a, a stone cold, practically empty theater. It was really sad. And I was like, Uh that was the first inkling I got where I was like, I don't know if this is going to do very well. And, um, because up until then I bought my tickets in advance. I thought that this was going to be another star Wars movie where otherwise it's just, you're, 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 you're in trouble if you don't buy your tickets. Um, uh-huh. but no, there were, my friends went, what? And no one else said anything. And I laughed. <laughs> I laughed when I saw the reveal yeah. because it's goofy. It's, uh, it just doesn't Ray Park, who I think is a really good physical performer is not yeah. a very good actor. And, right. uh, he does a lot of like mouthing in this scene because he's not, it's not his voice. It's Sam Wood's right. voice. And there's just a, a ton of, of like tongue acting in the scene it's just very strange <laughs> it's off-putting yeah. it's not a very i mean it, it, look he's in the movie for 25 seconds and i don't fault yeah. ray park for saying absolutely i'll come back to my most iconic performance but oh sure it's uh it's not a good performance and uh no and i can only imagine what it would be like to watch him because it seems like what they're trying to do and obviously that won't be happening because solo was a massive bomb um i don't think they're going to be able to do what they planned seemingly, which was have Maul be a prominent figure in these movies. And I Mm -hmm. can only imagine what that would have looked like, like Ray Park, just voice acting, like mouthing words over someone else's dialogue for an entire film. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, So you were ready for it, but beyond we'll get into the fan service elements and what this means for the star Wars universe in a second. Is there sort of just like a lack of respect for like, movie making when you jam something like that into the climax of a film totally um this is what my piece is about and i think it's yeah um and i'm i'm someone who watched the silly cartoon shows right like i'm not coming at this from a perspective of i was confused and didn't understand why darth maul was in the movie i'm coming at this from a perspective of this is bad for movies. Like this is bad mm-hmm. when we assume that six seasons of a cartoon show is built in audience knowledge and you need to see those six seasons of that cartoon show that ended quite years ago um, in order to understand what's going on in this supposedly standalone movie. I was under the impression that that's how they were selling these new movies. Yeah. But um, doesn't seem that way. Seems like actually they're just following what I think, and this is a totally other conversation, but I think this is the marvelization of, of blockbuster filmmaking. It's this idea that in order to understand one part of a whole, you need to absorb the whole. And that's not, that's one thing when it's six star Wars movies and you're looking at a sequel. It's another thing when you're looking at the Marvel movies, which are 18 movies, or you're looking at the star Wars franchise, which is now extending into even Marvel. Hasn't quite done this actually. What, what star Wars just did. This would be like if agent Coulson showed up in the new Avengers movie and we were just supposed to understand that he'd been brought back to life. Oh sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Except it's a little bit less strange. It's a little bit more strange in star Wars because Darth Maul was so much more iconic than agent Coulson and um, <laughs> yeah. and he and he died in a movie twenty years ago, 
Right. Like I brought this up with, I was curious. I, I brought this up with the most casual Star Wars fans I know, my parents. And I said, uh-huh. do you guys remember Darth Maul? And I said, like the devil guy. And my mom was like, yeah, oh, he died, right? He got chopped in half. Yeah. And extremely memorable, very memorable, like because it's almost more memorable because people wanted him back like he should have been in the two second two prequels. It would mm-hmm. have made sense, but he wasn't. And uh, he got chopped in half and people remember that. So when he shows up like my friend and other people that I know were under the impression that um, this was set before the Phantom Menace, which is so you're just you're setting yourself up for needless confusion and yeah. you're setting yourself up to alienate a certain portion of the audience that didn't watch the cartoons and doesn't want to have to watch the cartoons to understand what's going on in a Han Solo movie that has nothing to do with Darth Maul or the Clone Wars or any of that. Yeah. You know, and I think about it, even if I were to think about it in the charitable, like, Disney terms of virality and PR and all these things, how much more effective would it have been to have a teaser trailer two years from now for a new movie where Darth Maul takes his hood off and you see the horns for two seconds. People would go nuts. And this seems like such a worse version of that. Well, what's interesting is um, there was just a Slash Film interview published with... um, Yeah, bring me up to speed on this. This is really fascinating to me because I think it's even... even, It it makes it actually worse. Let me see if I can find the quote. Apparently, Maul was never a given for this movie. Apparently, there was a list of characters. So yeah, here's what Ron Howard says. Uh, it was sort of initially written in a rather generic way. It just sort of said boss. And I thought when I came in, I assumed they knew who it was and they were just keeping it under wraps and they didn't. Maul was listed as one of the candidates. So this is a disaster as far as I'm concerned. This idea that there's a list of, and I imagine Jabba the Hutt's on that list. I imagine Boba Fett's probably on that list. You know, I imagine, I imagine Supreme Leader Snoke's probably on that list in like a Definitely. strange, yeah. Or like five or six down. And then I imagine you probably, if it's a long enough list, you probably get into really deep, silly EU stuff. Like uh, I read books with the uh, Prince Shizor, like like the blue guy with the ponytail. Oh, Shadows of the Empire, baby. Exactly. I'm, with you. <laughs> I'm sure you get into really deep, silly nonsense that yeah. um that would be even more confusing for audiences. So maybe this maybe we dodged a bullet here, but. You shouldn't. You really shouldn't write your movie like that. Like that's just not how storytelling works. So, and this is this is interesting because what the question I wanted to bounce off you, not knowing about the existence of this interview, is like there's no way that Ron Howard knows or cares who Darth Maul is. Actually, so who is the who's the they in that sentence? Is it Kathleen Kennedy? Is it just Disney? It seems like it was the Kasdans who had a list. John Kasdan who is Lawrence Kasdan's son and uh, the beneficiary of an incredible amount of nepotism, if this movie is anything to, to, to get away from. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, it seems like he was really lobbying for Maul. As, I imagine okay. he's someone who's a big fan of the cartoons. And, mm-hmm. um, and Howard came in, and it, he says that he lobbied really hard for Darth Maul. He says oh, he found that right. character to be, re- to be really effective. And um, Ron Howard uh, was in the running to direct the Phantom Menace, Lucas went to him and asked him to direct the Phantom Menace and Howard backed off and said, I think you should do this, George. It's a big responsibility. So mm. I imagine he has some familiarity with the character, but the big thing is that he says, he he said, I knew for a fact without asking directly and giving anything away, my son Reed, who just turned 31, who's a dedicated Star Wars fan, uh, he's a golfer. He's not in the business. Okay, that doesn't have anything to do with anything wrong. Uh, he says, I just whispered that possibility, and he thought that would be really cool. So 
Okay. So Ron Howard. So really, the person to blame here, it sounds like, is Ron Howard's son Reed. I guess that's Reed who we Howard. should be. We should be taking the blame to him. Yeah. Presumably Bryce Dallas Howard's little brother. Oh yes, actually, yeah, you're totally right. So so. Yeah, I guess it's his fault. <laughs> yep. Let's. Uh, we should start a Twitter account um, with some bad pun on Reed Howard's name. I, um, yes, but wow, this that's, is wild. Uh, and then the cat, and then it seems like John Caston was really a huge fan of it. But I can't imagine this was something corporate mandated. I don't think Disney wants to acknowledge. It doesn't seem like they've wanted to acknowledge the prequels until now. Um, okay. I I mean, you have someone like Jimmy Smith showing up in Rogue One, but you don't mm-hmm. really have mm-hmm. something this huge and and strange and and off putting. So. Let me turn, John, to talk about... I love the way you framed your piece, which is, you know, we have more and more movies supposedly building out this universe, and yet it feels like the, this realm of possibilities, which is literally cosmos-wide, is getting constricted with each passing film. How did, how did this kind of dawn on you? Well, six months ago, I saw The Last Jedi, and uh, I don't mm-hmm. know how you feel about that movie. I know it's pretty polarizing, but I, I love it. Yeah, I adore the movie. I think it's it's great. I think it's a return to form for the series in a in a whole ton of ways. But the biggest way is that I think it returns that breadth of the universe to Star Wars. That mm-hmm. final shot of the stable boy staring at the horizon always gets me. I think it's an incredible statement on the power of Star Wars to influence children and and anyone and the fact that the movement against that movie is a bunch of bitter jaded adults is i think exactly what the movie is talking about these Mm -hmm. bitter jaded adults who can't let go of the past he's the that's the villain of the movie um yeah i was feeling really optimistic about star wars going into solo even though i knew that it was kind of a step in the wrong direction i thought well you know what maybe this is one for the people that are not me and then we'll go back to one for for me right like one mm-hmm. fine maybe we'll do i really like the force awakens wasn't a huge fan of rogue one i really loved the last jedi i didn't like solo maybe that's what we're doing and maybe that's fine every other star yeah. wars movie is something i like but this movie seems to speak to a view of the star wars franchise where everything has an explanation and everyone knows everyone and we're just back to c3po being built by darth vader and finding right. out where han solo got his name and it's just exhausting and borderline incestuous in a weird way it's like everything is so entangled and exhausting and like even the things in this movie that build out the universe because i think there are moments where you're like oh this is like the underworld and this is an interesting new take on star wars that i haven't seen in the other movies even those moments are just overshadowed by something where the entire plot of the movie is Han does all of the things you ever heard that he did in the original movies in a span of like two days. Like he meets Lando. He wins the Falcon from Lando. He meets Chewie. <laughs> he gets his mm-hmm. gun. Like it's just weird. Like I, yeah, it, it really, what does he do in the thing. next 12 years? Well, they want to do two more of these. Apparently yeah. they, I'm sure they won't, but I, I, it really, I saw an internet comment that was like, well, I was a little disappointed that at the end of the movie, Chewie didn't have his bowcaster. So I guess there's a market for people <laughs> who really uh-huh. just want to see these characters become the characters that we already know they were. It's yeah. just, I don't, I don't really understand it, but I, it sort of feels like maybe the last Jedi was the exception to the rule. And, uh, and we're moving and I don't want to be like a sky is falling kind of person about this, but I think that this movie's bad and I think that it's um, bad for the franchise. And I don't know with the news of like a Boba Fett movie and a Kenobi movie and like, mm-hmm. what are we going to where What are we going to get from that that we don't already have? And it's, uh, to me, it seems like there's just this like 
deep irony about the fact that doing these anthology movies should be freeing, I would think, on behalf totally. of the people making them. Like you don't you don't have the burden of connecting multiple films. This is not the uh, you know the peak of the canon in trilogy form. But they feel more than Rogue One too. I think this and Solo feel like the most fussed over, like target marketed. It's it's just it's chock full of weird irony. I've always thought that there is a good Han Solo movie to be made, and that good Han Solo movie. There's a 20 minute period in this movie where I thought I was watching it, and it's the scene after he meets Chewbacca, and uh-huh. they go on a train heist, right? And it has right. nothing to do with the other movies. It has nothing to do with setting up Han's relationship with another character that we've already seen. And everything to do with these new characters who not all of them are great. I think the John Favreau little monkey guy is like kind of annoying. I know there are yeah. people who despise him. I thought he was fine. Um, but there, for that brief period, it's just a train heist. And they're just stealing something. And there are pirates surrounding them. And there are a few new characters. And there's Han and Chewie. And they're on an adventure. And that's the movie that I would have liked to watch. One that isn't mm-hmm. all bound up in the Kessel Run. And like even when they do end up going on another heist, it's a heist that has everything to do with one line that we heard in the original movies, which is yeah. somehow, which has now been mythologized to the point of explanation. And that's the that's counterintuitive to the idea of mythology. And I uh, yeah, so that for that for that fifteen or twenty minutes, I was really enjoying the movie. I thought it had drive. I thought it had energy. I thought the performances were all gelling. And then it just sort of becomes, oh, we got to go see Lando. We got to win the Millennium Falcon. It's just a bunch of. It's just a checklist. It's just yeah. connecting the dots. Yeah. So, John, I'll kind of I'll get you out of here with this one. As you look into the future and you see or imagine, maybe that kind of. One for the people who want Star Wars to move forward, one for the people who want it to be crystallized, looking backwards. Um, you no longer see that as the possibility? You think this is more a harbinger, Solo is a harbinger of where things are going? I did on Friday when I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. Today, uh, after this bomb of an opening weekend, uh, genuinely have no idea what's going to happen. Because sure. if I was at Lucasfilm right now, I would be saying, well, people don't want these movies that are just rehashing the past. They want The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. But also, there's this loud minority on the internet who are so furious about The Last Jedi that I don't know if that's clouding anyone's judgment over at the business side of things. So right. I'd, like them, I'd like to believe that they'll be smart enough to know that this movie didn't bomb because of The Last Jedi. It bombed because it wasn't a very good movie, marketed poorly, released in an incredibly crowded time of year. Um, but I'm sort of unsure. I think we're going to know in the next couple of months. I imagine there will be like a big Hollywood reporter expose about the problems of Solo and like what Disney executives are thinking right now about the future of the Star Wars franchise. And mm-hmm. I imagine – we'll probably end up hearing things. If Ryan Johnson gets fired from his trilogy this year, then we'll know where things are going. If Boba Fett moves forward, we'll know where things are going. Um, I want to be optimistic right now because I think this could be a positive turning point where they say to themselves, well, people don't want this. People want new things. So let's Mm -hmm. double down on Ryan Johnson. Let's double down on that. Let's, let's cancel the Boba Fett movie because no one will, I think the Boba Fett movie would bomb quite frankly. He's a cool set of armor. There's nothing else. He never said or did anything interesting. No, Uh, here's my hot take. Django Fett is better than Boba Fett. Mm. At least he does stuff. 
And he was a father to a little version of himself. What's, yeah. There's some emotional dynamic there. That's kind of cool. Also, he's a good yeah. dad. So Absolutely. Yeah. Um, he made his son answer the door when Tan Wee was there that one time. Um, well, John, uh, I this seemed more like an excitable airing of grievances than an interview, but thanks for your time, man. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks so much. If you come with us, you're in this life for good. You might want to buckle up, baby. All right. Well, thank you, John, for your terrific piece of... I seriously like looked all around after this came out, and I was just like, can anybody speak <laughs> to my genuine frustration with the way this movie feels the need to like needlessly connect to other parts of the Star Wars universe? And John did. And then he came on here and he spoke to it again. So... Bad, um, bad, 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 bad. Wow. So bad. I think it's bad good. I'm, I'll probably no. watch it again. Come on. No. No, you haven't given me ample opportunity to talk about this. Donald Glover is highly watchable. No. Yes. Donald Glover is doing like a funny Billy D. Williams impression. <laughs> when did you realize that he was really doing the Billy D. Williams voice? I... Oh, immediately at the poker table. Immediately. Because he's just sitting there with his little, like, scarf on. He has, like, a room full of capes. Like, (laughs) this character, it should have been the Lando Calrissian movie and, like, let Miller and Lord, like, do whatever they want. I think... At first, I was just like, oh, he's being very smooth because it's, like, performative and they're gambling around everyone. But when they got back on the Falcon, he's like, these are the controls. And I was like, (laughs) oh, wow, he's going to do, he's really doing this. (laughs) I love the fact that if you want to link this movie in, like, winky ways to, like, the original series, this movie, like, gave an origin story to the fact that Billy D. Williams would always say, Han, instead of Han. (laughs) <laughs> Which is not addressed in the original uh, series, as far as I remember. Billy G. Williams still set time a run. to save Han. Yeah, still time to save Han. But this movie gives it an <sighs> origin that he just so disrespects everything about him that he says Han. I uh, didn't put that together. That's really funny. It's pronounced uh, Han. I really, I, I know I haven't mounted an adequate defense. I think it's bad good, though. I I think there are enjoy... Like, going through this movie and then being angry about it is, like, a satisfying set of experiences. Right. When I walked out of the theater, though, still, you know, 14 days from podcasting, I was, I was like, jazzed enough about this failure. Um, I think that the reclaiming the Han shot first thing is a really, really smart moment. I think... I like really like the line about... Um, where he's like, you don't know everything, Kira. And she's just like, no, you're right. Just a little bit more than you. Which is like kind of a classic read on who the Han Solo character is. Like, I think there's good moments in here. We didn't even talk about the Phoebe Waller-Bridge robot, which I, I find, again, like really messy but entertaining. I think it's a bad good. I agree with John that this is just, hopefully, the commercial failure of this movie either just stops them doing this or um, make better uh, these movies. Do you think it's worse than Rogue One? I liked Rogue One. I think I like bullied you into giving it a bad, bad, maybe. I remember liking Rogue One and feeling like it was so wholly different from like a Star Wars movie in a lot of ways that when it was linked in a sort of incidental way to A New Hope, that was sort of cool. Okay. This one is just like, 
tell us more. Tell us. Oh, this movie is absolutely has to talk about the the Kessler and the 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 twelve <laughs> the Kessel Run and twelve parsecs. The Kessel Run and the twelve parsecs because this You're movie so cute when you try to dig deep for Star Wars references. I'm not like a huge Star Wars guy, but I've seen them all. Yeah. But I'm not going to fucking watch six seasons of a cartoon (laughs) where they glue Darth Maul back together. (laughs) Oh, man. He's dead. What's dead is dead. What's dead is dead. You're kind of a Kylo Ren guy. Let the past die. Kill it if you have to. Um, Where to now? You want to get into uh, Red Dragon? (laughs) Sure, I'll get into Red Dragon with you. I'm pretty pumped for Red Dragon, honestly, because this movie is like I it's I mean, like whatever you think about it, like you can't argue with me that this movie isn't like wildly funny for like its category and it has like a lot of talent, like buying in in a way that like immediately, you know, that at worst, this is going to be like a deep blue sea. (laughs) And that's a social contract that, like, I'm willing to buy. Okay. Uh, So 2002, uh, directed by... Brett Brett Ratner. Ratner, that piece of shit. (laughs) That piece Um, of shit. (laughs) So it is a prequel to Silence of the Lambs. The book, um, written by Thomas Harris, like, actually, chronologically precedes his writing of Silence of the Lambs, though. Um so if it, they did not have to reverse engineer this script to right. link up to Silence of the Lambs because it did naturally. You want to synopsize? Sure. Um, well, you probably know the Hannibal character from either Silence of the Lambs or this movie or Hannibal. Um, so it's Anthony Hopkins playing this very smart but, like, fucking nuts, uh, like, serial killer guy, Hannibal Lecter. And as the movie opens, Hannibal Lecter's like, Hanging out and like eating people because, like, that's what he's into. <laughs> yeah, he's eating uh, piccolo players who are a half step yeah, sharp. Yeah, the setup, the, the, like, the opening prologue is he's so pissed that one of the piccolo players in this orchestra, that he's symphony orchestra that he's watching, like, isn't good. So he murders him and he eats him yep. and serves him to all the other, like, board members uh, of the symphony orchestra. Yes. Oh, and then Edward Norton's like working on like a Buffalo Bill style case and Dr. Lecter's giving him like good tips, (laughs) but it turns out that the case that he's, you know, working on Hannibal Lecter is the murderer. So they like have this confrontation that leaves them both. Edward Norton plays the detective and he gets like stabbed. Yeah, he gets, like, run through with, like, a couple of, like, antique arrows. Yeah. You know, and then Hannibal Lecter gets shot a couple of times, like, in his extremities. Enough to yeah. incapacitate him. Uh, and now he's behind bars at the Chilton, uh, Dr. Chilton run, uh, whatever, Baltimore yeah, that, mental institution. Right, right. That you know from Silence of the Lambs. Um and another case, and th- th- but that's not even the movie. That's almost enough no. to be a whole movie, but it's not. There's another serial killer on the loose, and he likes to like watch families and then like murder them and like rape the mother right in front of the whole family and pop out people's eyeballs and replace them with like mirror pieces, which sounds like horrible, but is 
it's not that big of a deal. Like in the in the movie, it's not as gory as you might think. Right. This movie's not that gory um, for its horrible, disgusting setup and premise and like vices these killers are into. But anyway. Harvey Keitel goes down to the Florida Keys, where three years later, that's where our Edward Norton's living in uh, Marathon, Florida, which it like sets up in this weird way that with like a title card that like you're gonna need to know Marathon, Florida. Right, a town that sounds made up, but you gotta know it. Well, you have to know it. And so Harvey Keitel shows up and is just like, "Hey, remember me? I'm your boss from three years ago. We've got another serial killer on the loose." We're going to bring you back into the fold. And pretty quickly you realize the reason they brought Edward Norton, who's now married to Mary Louise Parker, uh, and they have this kid. Um, the reason they brought him back is to visit Hannibal Lecter and use the same, essentially, setup of Silence of the Lambs to catch not, uh, what's his name? Ted Levine. Ted Levine. And then, but then we cut to the story of the actual killer himself, who plays way more of a role, I would say, than Ted Levine plays. Oh, way more. Where And it's Ray Fiennes, who he, like, was abused as a child, with you, which you get the sense of with some pretty horrifying, like, memory voiceover things. And then right. cuts to the present. And he's like, no, Grandma, don't touch me there. And he's, like, benching weights. And yeah. he's just a real scary motherfucker now. He's very scary. Much scarier than Voldemort. David Yates, that's directed at you. Um, Maybe this movie was just a means to an end for Ray Fiennes to like, it was his audition tape for the uh, eventual uh, Voldemort role. Dear Doctor, I have admired you for years. I wanted to tell you I'm delighted that you've taken an interest in me. I don't believe you're telling who I am. Besides, the important thing is what I am becoming. I have some things I'd love to show you. Until then, I remain your most avid fan. Let's just go ahead. I'm, I, I suppose I'm happy that I can blame Brett Ratner for having a lot of potential in terms of like the bizarre, like terrifying gothicism of this movie that's like right there in the Ted Talley script down to the fact that you know, he's obsessed with William Blake paintings. Um, but that's but probably Brett, from the... It is, yes. The book and the script. But Brett Ratner directs it like a Tom Clancy novel. You know, it, there's just not that emotional terror yeah. to this movie. The filmmaking, like, isn't horrifying. It's just competent. I just think it says something about... And I'm not specifically talking or picking on Brett Ratner, even though I am... Um, it just says something about one's hubris to like take a movie like silence of the lambs. And if someone asks you to direct the sequel being like, fuck yeah. <laughs> like fuck love Jonathan. Silence of the lambs. Yeah. Love silence of the lambs. Fuck Jonathan to me. Like I'm going to, I'm doing this. All that and, stuff where they talk to the camera. That, that was so slow. I'm going to do it fast. I'm going to do it fast and better in 2001. Yeah. It's going to be like silence of the lambs, but like with rush hour. And like, <laughs> you know pretty quickly that this movie is like a train wreck. Like from the, the slow, tr- from the slow tracking shot, like into the duller hide, like a state, I was like, no, like <laughs> this is, 
this is not going to be like a movie in the same even school as Silence of the Lambs. No. This is just a shameless money grab kind of thing, which, I mean, that's the genre we're dealing with here. But this one in a way that it's almost like it's goofy. Like how much talent is on the screen? You got Hopkins in the same amount of time as probably he did in Silence of the Lambs. Harvey Keitel, Edward Norton, Rafe Fiennes, Emily, uh, Emily Watson. You even got Frank Whaley in there for a second. And I Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman in a role. He's only in two scenes. When you think about the subtle POV shifts of Silence of the Lambs, it's one of the great accomplishments of the movie. Is you just duck to Buffalo Bill enough to um, either prove or disprove what they're talking about in the case. And then you leave. And you don't know where that house is. And you don't know where anything is. You've only seen the inside of it. All the way up to the you know the bait and switch at the end. Where Jodie Foster's just doing legwork to close out the case. And she winds up at James Gum's house. And when that happens, because you've spent like two minutes with him... And he's just like, oh, was she a great big fat person? Like, all the, like, Ted Levine stuff is like, oh, no. And by the time you get to Francis Dollarhide in the house at the end, he's not scary. You've seen 45 minutes of him, including his trauma. Can I make an argument, too, that if anything, he's, like, pretty sympathetic? Yes, there... Edward Norton talks about it with his wife. He's just like, yeah, society made him this way. Go get me some s'mores, kid. (laughs) Yeah, don't get abducted by Red Dragon, who's probably in our house. Right. That ending was so stupid. Like, why did it end that? Like, he didn't... like Patriot Games or something. It's just not fundamentally not scary. (laughs) Right, and then nonsensical in the fact that they, a la Darth Maul, glue him back together and stick him in another thing, which is the fifth act of this movie back in... Marathon, Florida. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think this movie's hilarious. I found it highly watchable. I think Hopkins, like, making that... Wasn't it, like, somebody who said about Anthony Hopkins, like, the problem with Anthony Hopkins is he likes living in L.A. too much? Right. Or, uh, so, like, this is where Anthony Hopkins is, like, my career is evolving, <laughs> you know? And he, like, just leans into this, like, creepy old man, which he will, like, he's doing it now in Westworld. He's just Hannibal Lecter now. Will, have you never felt a sudden rush of complacency? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, it's unforgivable, too, like, the chain scene that tries to be the scene oh, you where like they're... That? Yeah, that was okay. It's diminishing returns, though. I mean, you know, that the famous piece of trivia about Hopkins being in Silence of the Lambs for 12 minutes or whatever, he's the shark in Jaws. You don't want to... The more you see of the shark, the less scary the shark is. The more the more shark just talks and talks, the, like, <laughs> you know, the less interesting the shark is. Well, and, and we don't have to go, like, deep into this, too, but then, I mean, the other thing that this... Ed, Ed Norton's not bad in here. He's, he's, you know, he's better than your... I mean, the worst thing about him is whoever gave him that terrible haircut... Exactly. Um, but no movie is as good as Silence of the Lambs, not only because it's diminishing returns, but like there's no Clarice Starling. Clarice Starling's emotional journey is what makes that movie good. It is not Anthony Hopkins being a great boogeyman. Um, and so, so then just to be like, I'm a cop. I've seen some shit. Now I have a family. I hope they don't come for my family is not nearly as good as what Clarice Starling faces. Yeah. 
I mean, if this movie existed in a vacuum, I think it would just be like a mediocre, you know, it'd be like bone collector. It'd be like the bone collector. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. a, what a bad movie. Isn't Denzel Washington is... in a hospital bed that entire film? That's right. <laughs> well, not at the very beginning when you see how he gets in the hospital bed. This movie's better than Bone Collector, um, but because yeah. it's because of the source material, not because of Brett Ratner. Um, right. And some yeah. pretty some pretty good performances by some of you know our best actors working today. <laughs> Definitely, I mean, Ray Fiennes like makes the most of the movie's weird decision. The like the morning after he's like slept with Emily Watson, and you see him like almost sort of like childishly huddling into the pillow. You're like, this is weird. Ray finds, but like, I guess you, they gave you the rope and you're using it. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't quite hang himself with it. Um, no. yeah. And I like his little like breakdown thing where there's like maybe a good person trapped inside him, but then like the movie gives up on that. Yeah. Like that's what I don't get about the final note of this movie is that like, he's deep down a good person and he was like sacrificing himself at the end. Right. But like, I guess he failed and the bad guy took over and was just like, give me a one way bus ticket to Marathon, Florida. <laughs> well, you know what the funniest part of the movie is? Tell me. The funniest part is when he goes to the museum and eats the painting. Oh, yeah. I almost <laughs> forgot about that. He's laugh out loud funny. See, this movie, this movie has great moments like that where like y- you just can't look away. Because, I mean, Brett Ragnar is such a he's such a voyeur. In, like, the things he... He's so, like, funny because he's a voyeur in one sense, but he also knows how to make, like, not an X-rated film. Like, I doubt this movie had to be cut again for being too graphic or something, you know. But it's 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 highly watchable. You know, as Brett, oh. uh, Brett Ratner's a terrible human being, but he makes quite a watchable movie, I would say. Yeah. Um. So... Are you giving this a good, a bad good? I think this is almost quintessential bad good. Almost a dictionary definition. I almost like it more than that, but like its flaws are too many. It's bad. Yeah, all right, bad good. It's definitely like deep blue sea territory. <laughs> I I disagree. It's not that trashy. It's not that trashy, but it's like it is kind of that trashy. Like the idea of it. Like, what do you want, a dumb premise movie or, like, a movie just based on something else that was successful? Who's to say? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it degrades itself in that way. Um, shall we do Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them? Yeah. Let's go to back to the Wizarding World, this time in America. The Wizarding Well. Um, so, yeah, this, this was based on a book which, if memory serves, is not a narrative book but is just a guide. I think it's a guide to the beasts. Well, Luke's commander was from the original Harry. Right. Well, from the original Harry Potter series, he was one of the textbook authors. Right. That they had to study and fantastic beasts and where to find them was the name of like one of the books that they read. Yeah. So like Harry Potter fans could read the textbook, I think, but like entertaining. Um, But then JK Rowling has adapted it into um, a period piece Potter prequel set in New York City in the 20s. You're an interesting man, Mr. Scamander. Just like your suitcase, I think there's much more to you than meets the eye. Kicked out of Hogwarts for endangering human life with a beast. 
Yet one of your teachers argued strongly against your expulsion. I wonder, what makes Albus Dumbledore so fond of you, Mr. Scamander? First trip to America? Yes. Must get that fixed. Anything edible in there? Um, uh, no, no. Any livestock? No. So the newt, played by Eddie Redmayne, his, some of his beasts get out right in the middle of uh, the city. It seems like he's got a great handle on these beasts. No. They break it out almost immediately. I'm surprised that on his, like, several-week uh, boat voyage from England, right. he didn't let out some beasts on there. He's a real Hagrid-type figure in his, like, spiritual connection to the beast, but his inability to, like, wrangle them effectively. Can I ask, like, a bold, hot take question, like, pretty early on? Because I think it rears its head pretty early on. Okay. Is Newt Scamander severely autistic? Even from the first shot of him interacting with a person, the guy at customs, he can't make eye contact with them. He's a shrinking violent. It's really interesting that I wonder if he's like, if this is one of like the first sort of tentpole leading men who are clearly like autistic characters that we've, we've dealt with. So yeah, his beasts get out and the nomadges, which is what they call muggles in the States. Um, they're seeing some of these beasts. So what, what do they do? They, they obliviate their memory. Uh, men in black style with a simple charm so they don't remember having seen magic occur uh, but he, they run into this bank and Dan Fogler who plays Jacob Kowalski has has seen the beast and Redmayne takes him down into the vault for some reason they're kind of like handcuffed together at this point narratively speaking right because like, his beast is out guy? and his beast ends up in the safe and then he, uh, Fogler's trying to open up a bakery and their suitcases get switched and right right it's That's a whole it. they become intrinsically entwined uh enemy of the state style yes and then Catherine Waterston who plays an auror or you know like a a detective in the wizarding world who's been fired from the, uh, or demoted or yeah, demoted from the American ministry of magic. Um, well, she's still in it. She just works for the wand registry or some boring clerical bureaucracy job. She's not a hotshot anymore. Not like Colin Farrell's graves. Um, so Colin Farrell's like direct addresses credence so much in this movie. Oh my God. And did you like in your mind, every time he said credence, think of Scott Stapp and went like, could you take me? Like, <laughs> nothing. No, I did not do that. Oh, cause I think that Scott Stapp and Colin Farrell sort of look similar. Interesting. So I just thought of creed. Yeah. And yeah. Then Alter bridge. <laughs> no, I got that part. Um, but yeah, Credence is like the the house boy of this like wicked orphanage mother who also believes in the extermination. Not only in the existence of witches, which most people don't believe in, but that they should be exterminated. Um, and it turns out that Graves is like looking for this powerful young wizard because when a when a wizard usually under twelve or something like that has to repress their magic, it creates this thing called an obscurus, which is like this dangerous, uncontrollable cloud of smoke that kills because they're repressing what is fundamentally them. And they run all over the city and there's like sort of like a, you know, there's a chase, 
There's this mystery about like what is an Obscurus. Eddie Redmayne has an Obscurus. Can I talk about Obscuruses for a second? This is one Please. of my big problems with this movie. That's not a fantastic beast. Isn't it? To, in my mind, when somebody's psychological torment and repression creates a formless cloud of smoke, that doesn't qualify as a naturally, biologically occurring You know what beast. it is. What? Well, I'm only saying this because I watched this movie right after I watched Solo, but it, it's, it's a maelstrom. Yeah. <laughs> what he's got there is a, a maelstrom in a bubble. Do like you if, think that the Maelstrom's just a big obscura? Do you think these movies cross over? I'll, I'll let me cross over a third movie for you with a hypothetical question. If Francis Dollarhide had an Obscurus, they wouldn't put it in a fucking zoo. It's not a beast. <laughs> You're right. He kind of did have it, and then he like ate it. Yeah, William Blake was his Obscurus. Right, and then William Blake was inside him. Yep. <laughs> He was becoming. Anyway. This movie's um, so long. It is long. Can we talk about that? The Harry Potter movies have gotten out of hand. These big tentpole movies have gotten out of hand. Right. They're so long. Avengers is long. Everything's long. Why does it have to be so long? I think it's because they just think that people come to these movies because they just want to see their thing. And they just want to see it for a long time. It's not about the storytelling. I think it's just like, you want to see your thing for a long time, right? That's why you buy it. And then some people are on Twitter going, that's not my thing! Right? You forgot! You You forgot my thing! (laughs) I don't like that they call them no matches. They're muggles! Oh, man. Um, I I did like the... How did you like the American crossover? I thought it was great. I thought it was great. I thought the way they did, like... 1920s magic was like hilarious and well like production designed yes it's a good looking movie it's a great looking movie a much better looking movie than the late stage yates potter movies which like well because it knows that it has to reinvent the wheel so to speak in terms of like what magic looks like in america right right you know and there's even like political stuff going on you know between like what happens in british magic world and what happens in America. Like they reference laws that exist that like magic people can't marry no magis. And Hedy Redmayne uses that as a little like conversational spear there. Yep. Not about those laws you have. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really love Redman. I really, yeah, that was classic Redman. I really love the bit. Um, where they t- they allude to the rivalry between national wizarding schools and the Catherine Watterson sisters, like, oh, you mean the education at Hogwash? Um, I thought it was a very funny. That's yeah, very that's thoughtful. Great. That rivalries exist is a real like next level world building, and I really appreciate that about this movie. It's good world building. What it's not is good referential filmmaking because I feel like what they're teeing up here is as evidenced especially in the Ron Perlman Goblin Bar, is this sort of, like, noir movie where Graves, Colin Farrell, should be, like, the detective, like, pursuing him. But they so brutally mishandle that character all the way until his Darth Maul moment, where, spoiler alert, he turns into Johnny Depp, and you're like, okay, well, then who was this guy? Like, what does it mean to be a cool wizard detective if he was just Johnny Depp the whole time? Yeah, and then you know nothing about this world, turns out. 
everything you know is a lie. Yes, that's why it's fundamentally like bad storytelling. It's not a great entree into this world. Like it's sort of a like third Harry Potter prisoner of Azkaban kind of move where they're like playing with time and characters who are not Mm. who they seem. I mean, Mm -hmm. I understand that all the Harry Potter movies have at least one character who is not what they seem. And they're typically the defense against the dark arts teacher. Yes. (laughs) Um, But yeah, this one is the main detective, which is just like a huge reveal. And maybe if it wasn't Colin Farrell, like if it was James Woods in whatever president movie we watched where he like turns, like, you know, James Woods is going to turn. Yeah. The cool thing they set up is like, what is it to be an horror? And instead it was just this weird guy's like packed with this boy, which turned creepy and bad. And then was just a smoke cloud destroying buildings for 20 minutes. I really, yeah. David Yates is like a fine director. He's like a classic B minus director. I don't, as good as this movie looks in certain moments, he's just not a good, like, he doesn't tell stories well through visuals. I could never tell what beasts escaped. I couldn't tell what happened in that scene. When Colin Farrell shows up in that house and then the broken down house and the Obscurus runs through the road, you're like, I don't understand who that guy is or what he's doing. Sure. I think there, I would give him a little bit more credit. I think there's some pretty beautiful sequences in this, especially with the beasts, like with the rhino thing in Central Park. Yeah, those are good. was like an excellent sequence, I thought, and like really sort of kept my attention. Um, But those are very simple to pull off in terms of what is happening. Sure, but there's just sort of a playfulness. I mean, that's the thing. The person who's making these movies is J.K. Rowling, and I think David Yates is the person that she's comfortable with adapting her work. Yeah, she's Kathleen Kennedy and George Lucas. (laughs) At the same time. Oh, God, yeah. Um, But yeah, and that's why the... I feel like since Harry Potter really, like, the movies really took off, that they really haven't been like since the third one, I think four through seven and a half were bad or just fine. Yeah. I think they were all adequate. They were adequate. F- like very four on. Yeah, exactly. I don't think she liked how outside the box Alfonso Cuaron was and was just I like, bet. give me the most boring British directors you've got. Right. If I show, if I like plucked a random 30 second clip from movies five through eight, like I think we would struggle to say what movie it was. Yeah. Unless there were what big we need is like a, a Michael Winterbottom, like third. The trip director? Yeah. Like that would be hilarious. <laughs> Crimes of Grindelwald. <laughs> oh, yeah. That'd be great. I'm pretty and excited, though, for that. It's, you're I mean, I excited think, for the Crimes of Grindelwald. I think that, I mean, Jude Law as a young Dumbledore <laughs> is just like a, it's like, how can we make this like old now I guess publicly gay man uh, cooler and like wearing three piece suits. Like what's Jude Law doing? Young Pope, young Dumbledore, baby. Young Pope, young Dumbledore. You got it. I will not join you in excitement over the crimes of Grindelwald, which is an all time. You didn't like this movie enough to be excited about any potential sequels. Especially not the Grindelwald part. (laughs) I mean, Johnny Depp's got to eat. I bet he went full bore on this movie. He's in a lot of financial trouble. When his bone structure turned from Colin Farrell's into Johnny Depp's, I'd say he's had enough to eat. Oh. He didn't look good. Colin Farrell looked much better. Also, like... Well, obviously, Colin Farrell's a much younger man. 
Is he much younger? He's got to have like 15 years. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> oh, Johnny Depp's 54. Colin Farrell's got to be like 41. He's 42. Okay, so yeah, that's a sizable age gap. Yeah. Okay. I think this movie is a soft good good. Oh, Chance is sticking his tongue out at me. He doesn't like that. Left a bad flavor in his mouth. I'm going to give it... I'm going to give it a bad, bad. A bad, bad? The more I think about this movie, the more, like, nonsensical it is. It's a Harry Potter movie. And it's too long. Oh, it's definitely too long. (laughs) Did you hear me talk about length? Um, it's almost good, bad. I think it's, I think it's bad, bad though. Yeah. It definitely like wavers between good, good and good, bad. But I think, you know, once the tremors settle, uh, it's landing. You also really liked, give me 30 seconds. You loved, you liked the Catherine Waterston, Eddie Redmayne romance. Oh, I love Catherine Waterston. I don't think you can have two characters who are both like, shrinking violets and make me care about that romance i think that's great it's so like punch drunk love and for someone who's such a reckless paul thomas anderson apologist (laughs) i'm not reckless an unrepentant paul thomas anderson i have nothing to repent for the fact that he's just an indulgent perhaps overrated filmmaker if you say one more word, I'm going to have to welcome you to a world of inconvenience. <laughs> That's the podcast, baby. Here we are. <laughs> All right. Um, well, we got to go. But this You was... have to go. You're the one dragging this out. You're the one with the heart out. <laughs> um, we got to go. So, Noah, I thank you kindly, as always, for the chat and for suggesting this category of, like, really substandard but entertaining films. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm here to do just that. Thanks to John DeLillo for coming on. That was a fun conversation. Uh, you can read his piece over at Film School Rejects and keep up with his work there. Um, as always, berealpodcast.com for all of our episodes. Uh, we've, got some, we've got some more coming up very soon. So yeah. s- stick around. Keep Give listening. us ratings. Rate us. Rate it doesn't us, take any time. No. You're, you're probably looking at your phone right now. Just do it. <laughs> I'll see you later, buddy. I can't wait. <laughs>